So you don't lose any providential advantage by holding to an open future. You just get a smarter God. Hmm. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead, okay, Scott. Uh, okay. Uh, did I say that already? Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. I gotta get my coffee. Hey, I saw that Scott was, uh, is he there? No, he, I created the group to try to get him on here, so his name's on there, but he's AWOL. He, well, he sent a message, like, an hour ago. I know, that's what I'm, I'm concerned. He's homeless. Oh, that's right, I keep forgetting that. His bed is not separate from everything else. I mean, it's one location. <laughs> that's right. It's the cab of a truck. So, how does he take a shower? That's a good question. I'm not sure I want to know. Baby wipes? Uh, I mean, you can do a lot with baby wipes. If well, you're Scott's in a body, his, he's got a... <laughs> <laughs> what? Just, just the way you said Scott's body. Oh, Scott's body. People are looking at me right now. This lady, this lady looks at me in her family van. <laughs> I'm laughing at her. I'm like, wait, no, I'm not laughing at you. Well, I'm you... laughing at Scott's body. <laughs> oh, Jeff. Come on. He's already got a complex. Scott needs to love himself more, and this is not going to help. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's not that. Uh, it's just the baby wipes. I'm just imagining a grown man cleaning himself with baby wipes. Forget that it's Scott. It could be you or I. You, yeah, I just did it. I went camping last weekend and no showers. You you use baby wipes. Just wash the important parts. You're good to go. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess you got to get it done out in the, the woods. Out in the woods. Um, by the way, people are laughing at you because you're wearing headphones with like an an old school microphone coming up your chin. I mean, <laughs> well, I really, I literally wanted to be that old AT and T caller. Are you gonna take me into Starbucks? Oh yes, yes, <laughs> that's perfect. Thanks. Do you want to go into Starbucks? Yeah. I mean, this is my home away from home. The only problem. Oh wait, a second. I'll have to pay with my card, not my. Uh... You need to my order, scanner. You do need to order something ridiculous. Oh, dude, really? Really? All right, I'm going. I'm going. I left my car on. All right. It's a Prius. It's never really on. Dude, I look ridiculous. You do look ridiculous. <laughs> what are you wearing? Sweatpants? Uh -huh. Jeff's walking to Starbucks. This is amazing. Hey, <laughs> this is so I'm actually podcasting right now. Um, hey, uh, cold brew, tall cold brew. Cold brew? Black. black. 295, man. It's a cold brew at 8.15 in the evening. Thank you. On a Thursday, you're going to be, 
you're planning on staying up watching Netflix all night or what? Uh, oh, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, that's that's gonna be a problem. <laughs> what the time going to bed, being a teacher in the morning? <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like you could be milking the situation a little more. Okay, here you can watch the cold brew get formed. No, I want you to make an announcement. Like, I need you in the room, stand on a chair and say, Ladies and gentlemen, I am the leader of a marriage retreat for literally tens of people. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you want to start recording? (laughs) So, Jeff, we had Greg Boyd on. Yeah, Greg Boyd. The amazing Greg Boyd. He's coming. I got to mention that we had some listener questions. People sent in some questions for us to ask. But, man, once you wind up Greg Boyd, he just gets going. Uh, And we ran out of time. So we talk about the listener questions after he's off, which is fun. But apologies to the listeners that didn't get their questions answered directly. However, later on... And, of course, in the past now, due to podcasting time travel. God dang, you're loud, Jeff, right now. It's so loud. How about right now? (laughs) So good. (laughs) Okay. I'll edit that out. (laughs) I bet you will. But he did go. He he found the questions on Twitter, and he, he had some pretty good answers. So some of those. Really? Yeah, some of those itches really? got scratched on Twitter by the man himself. Uh, but just apologies in advance that he was just flying and, and time flew by. He he gave us an hour and we we probably did an hour and 20, which was yeah. very gracious of him. So it, it was awesome. It was a great conversation. And again, more... You know, sorry, when you have people like that that are so good at at what they do and their knowledge base, you just let them run. Yeah. We just, it, we just get in the way. We, yeah. And it was at, right about the time I was going to say, Hey, we got a few listener questions. You want to do like a lightning round type thing. He was just coming off of answering my question about the flood. And he said, Oh, I have, I have other examples. You want to hear it? You want to hear it? And it's like, what am I, what are we going to do? Say no, Greg time to get to some questions. <laughs> right. So, it was awesome. And as it was. Scott's pattern, Scott missed the portion where Greg was talking about the nonviolence of God. And I was going to... He would have he stepped into that. Yeah, because Scott wants everybody to know that God can and will be violent. Or he has been. At the very least, he has been. And now Scott's not even here. We can't reach him on Skype. He could be dead in a ditch somewhere. Did you have any ahas or like, oh, that's so good? Well, moments? it's it's all so good. I mean, this concept of God's nonviolence is, believe it or not, it feels normal to me at this point. Um, I would not have sub- subscribed to that idea, uh, oh, a few years ago, because I would have just believed what the Old Testament said about God, like, right. at, at its face value. Um, and Greg has such a magical way of not just throwing that out, but just kind of showing what was going on. There's deeper things going on. 
below the surface and yeah, I tried Scott again. No Scott. So none of it was like brand new to me, but it's just, I, I can't get enough of that. And it's still controversial. Greg is what we would call a heretic to a lot of people in Christian circles. Yeah. I really, yeah, to some people, I mean, if, if he's teaching the nonviolence of God, I mean, a lot of people's view of the atonement of what Christ was doing or what, what happened to Christ on the cross was God pouring out his wrath on his son, which means God is violent. And Greg is kind of flipping right. that on his head, not just Greg, a lot of people. And I believe that's what the Bible is doing more and more progressively as it leads up to Jesus. So, I like how he, he talks about context and he talks about time and intent and who like who it was meant for but also the the storyline or the the parables and how that s- relates to us um and I can't remember he goes into s- some story about that just a little bit but it it makes you think a great deal i mean greg makes you uh almost like instantly believe it because he talks with such such conviction and you're thinking it must be true. Uh-huh. I mean, he's just, he's just, just driving forward and he, he's like with a Mack truck and, and humble all the way. Yeah. A Mack truck driving over a ramp through a loop de loop over the empire state building. Like, Oh, he does it beautifully. It's just, crashing down but still landing it perfectly somehow jeff a 10 a (laughs) 10.0 actually there was an aha moment um and i'm blanking on it i just had the aha moment and i'm i lost it that's great can you remind me what the aha moment was yeah it was that part where your synapses started to connect and they pulled back oh man they f- they misfired. They certainly did. You did not land that with a 10.0. <laughs> no. That was a 6.9. Easy, buddy. <laughs> it's a family show. Well, one thing was, it at the beginning when we're talking about the open view of the future, some call it open theism. Yes. Um, this is not my aha moment, but it's... He was just going to town on, on like, metaphysics and, like, what all these things mean using technical terms. I know Scott was following it, but part of it, I was just kind of, like, nodding my head saying, oh, yeah, that's it's really, that's really good. That's really good stuff. But inside going, like, I, I want to stop him and slow it down and, like, re-go through all of that because it was... It was kind of tough to follow, but, um, well, it'd be a chapter in a book and it it probably is. I mean, the fact that he wrote, uh, like hundreds and hundreds of pages of a book and then like, no, this isn't going to work. Yes. That just trashes it. That was an aha moment. He right. Starting the book to kind of defend the violent portraits, 
portraits of God and getting 300 pages in and deciding, no, I, something else is going on here. I'm not doing that. That was amazing, which leads to my aha moment that open theism, like no matter what you view about God, if you're a Calvinist who believes God's ordaining everything or you're an Arminian, uh, which he had some clever things to say about Arminians, which is basically free will people. Everybody prays like an open theist. You pray as if the future is not settled mm. and that you yeah. want things to happen that are not set in stone, which when if you really, maybe that doesn't sound crazy, but coming out of the background where you kind of believe that God has a plan for everything like you hear it so much. God has a plan for your life. I don't know why I get Southern a little bit. God's got a plan for this. It may seem really shitty, but God's doing something. You just don't know. So coming out of that and I don't blame people for that. It's comforting. And who knows? Maybe it's even true. But when you actually are praying, if God had some a plan that was, say, set in stone, when you actually are praying, why do you need to pray unless it's not set in stone? So when he made that point, he kind of dropped that bomb. Like everybody prays like the future's not settled. Everybody prays as if they're an open theist, whether or not they're an open theist. That was like, oh, man, mind explosion. Right. Yeah, and it makes total sense. Sounds. By the way, I saw Scott send us a message here. So is he ready to go? I hope he's not calling from an uh, like an alleyway and he's pinned down and needs help or something. Yeah, I'm I'm already in my jammies. I mean, I'd uh, I mean, I could pray for him, but I I don't think I'd go out there and help him. You're yeah, you're in a Prius with no pants on. What are you going to do? Hey, Scott Holbert joined. Hey. <laughs> he's, he's he is in a parking lot. He's in a parking lot wearing his work clothes. It's nine o'clock at night. Scott, are you in the Scott? Are you in the Walmart parking lot? I'm at uh, J.C. Penney. <laughs> <laughs> is that where you're crashing tonight? No, I'm gonna go back to work. I was out with people from work, so. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, we already did, you know, a couple minutes lead ups. So why don't you just give us a, a few thoughts on, on uh, what you're looking forward to from Greg Boyd? <laughs> oh, I thought he was great. Um, there, there's a ton of encouragement from him, and uh... that's great, Scott. <laughs> so, when you sleep at work, since you're houseless right now, homeless, not houseless. Your house is your truck and your work. Do you sleep inside the place, or do you sleep in your truck in the work parking lot? In my truck in the work parking lot. Man, ladies, does security ever come by? Um, not that I have heard. Wait, Zach was about to say something was, about the ladies? Yeah, I was going to say ladies. Scott is single. He's currently looking for a wife. Um, or a wife with, let's say, maybe a div divorcee, couple kids, instant family for Scott. He's not against that. Um, if somebody living out of their truck right now in their mid to upper 30s is appealing to you, <laughs> you know, email us at brosbiblesbeer at gmail.com. He's adventurous. He has a full-time job. 
he would love to go out with you and adventure on the Pacific Crest Trail for months and just get to know each <laughs> know each other. You know, I, you're right. I made him sound like a dirtbag. He he makes great money. He's in kind of a management position at an I, in the IT department at a bank. But he sold Only- his house and he's deciding to live out of his truck. <laughs> <laughs> Only part of that's true. I'm not in a management position, but uh, but he makes great hey, money. We've seen you manage people, literally. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I tell people what to do, but I'm not. A, uh, they don't listen to me. Well, if you just have the opportunity to tell people what to do, you're in management. Yeah, it's been fun though. It's been uh, two weeks now. Um, things are going pretty good. I'm gonna go camping this weekend up in Big Bear. Hopefully, I'll get to help my buddy uh, from church gut a deer. That'd be great. You guys uh, have freezer That's space? That's normal. That's normal. Yeah, I would love. Actually, I, I would love if you get deer. I got freezer space. I'll get. I'll. I'll, I'll try to get some of that backstrap. I don't know what that means, but it sounds dirty, and I like it. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I, I, Boyd was great. Um, I I thought I behaved myself, and uh, well, you missed the part where you would have had a chance to not behave yourself. Yeah, the nonviolent view of God. Yeah, we didn't get into that. We didn't get into that that much, right? No, we no, we did. You You were there, almost getting fired. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! That's when my boss came by. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But that's okay. We'll talk more about that later. It's important to note we have a ton of feedback to get to, which we're not doing now because we're doing Greg Boyd. But we'll do that on a very, very shortly upcoming episode. You like how smoothly that was. Very shortly upcoming episode of Bros Bibles Beer. Well, we su- we're supporting carcinogens right now in our podcast. Is Scott smoking? He is smoking. You see that little drag he took? He's hiding it. There it is. There I was it is. I, actually I was uh, yeah. I think I I think Boyd might have caught a glimpse of that as well. He didn't say anything though. You know what? Usually smoking smoking can look really cool when some people do it. I mean, it just looks it looks not when I do it though. Yeah, but you are in a parking lot like you are now, so it just kind of made sense. If we had told him Scott doesn't even smoke, but he's in a parking lot, like a JCPenney parking lot next to a park or something, and he's having a cigarette because that's just the moment, I think he'd be good with it. He would understand. <laughs> Technology is great. I got my phone is split screening you guys. Hey, you, you're see split screening me. Yeah, yeah, that's sweet. You know where I am, Scott? Del Taco parking lot? Oh, Starbucks parking lot. You got it. You know where Zach is? He's in his uh, office. He's in, no, he's in a room in what hotel in Vegas? Not the Mandalay Bay, right? Oh my God, too soon. That's he's too, like, too can't soon. believe you said you. that. How dare you, Scott? Scott, why would you even bring that up? I'm letting Jeff off the hook here. Scott, how dare you? <laughs> Man, we could, we, we could talk about, okay, we need to do an episode, just the three of us, unfiltered. We put it out that same night, no editing. Go. Let's do that soon. Yeah, I. It's. I mean, Boyd's already been two weeks. People don't know that though. Now they do. Oh. Uh, yes. 
We are delayed, though. We are delayed. Our producer has delayed our... We're a little bit bit spotty. Yeah. Our scheduling has been poor. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, guys, think about it, though. I mean, come on. Give give yourself some break here. We've got Sprinkle... Give, we had give we had sprinkle on. We had a dude from a dude. Tooth and Nail, Chad. Uh, <laughs> we had Greg Boyd. I mean, come on, Inglorious <laughs> Pastors. Inglorious so Pastors. Was that a marijuana cigarette? <laughs> I mean, and MacArthur's been on, been well, at least mentioned in at least half of our podcast. So I mean, so John MacArthur's McCarthy is probably like half a guest. Wait, yeah. Should we get MacArthur, McCarthy, and Piper? Oh my god! <laughs> if we can get at the Piper. same time. <laughs> at the same time, man, that would be a real blast. We could just talk about how women should be quiet and. They need to oh, go we've talked about that. Long and, well, you talked about need, that. We don't need Piper for that. Yeah, we have Scott. That's right. <laughs> and Paul. Wait, have I you heard Scott's of Paul the now, Apostle? Scott's now smoking his second cigarette <laughs> in about six minutes. <laughs> Scott, your body is a temple, and you are destroying it. You are tearing your temple down brick by brick, one cigarette at a time. You need to stop that. Knock that shit off. It's probably true. Yeah, and single ladies... Don't send emails to bbbpod at brosbiblesbeer.com. Send it to scott at brosbiblesbeer.com. Because Zach siphons them off and deletes them. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he's going to want to look at your profile, make sure you're a right match for me. (laughs) All right. Rowboat size? S to M slash L. Do you say S and M? S two M S slash M slash L. Okay. No. Scott's in no. S and M, ladies. No. So know that when you email him. Nope. That's not what he said. All I'm right. gonna correct you, Zach. No, You're we're corrected. done. We're done. Scott dot S and M dot lover dot com. Yeah, we'll edit that out. Mr. Greg Hi. Boyd, how you doing? Hello there. Okay, so which one is, is you? Of you is Zach. I'm Zach. You, that's Zach, and yeah. you are. I'm Jeff. Jeff. Yeah, hey. one, right. Yeah, Scott is skyping with us as well. Um, he is muted right now, but he'll be joining us shortly. Do we need that light on there? It's just no, kind of bright. No, doesn't have to. I think we I just want to make sure. You guys can see me, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let me cut kill my backlight. I wouldn't kill it. You know, just put it out. We're not a violent people. So just <laughs> well, we'll see about be, that, Greg. <laughs> be gentle to the life. <laughs> I like it. Uh, now, so who's Marshall App? Is that? He looks like you're in a, in a uh, music studio. Yeah, that's that's mine. Back when I had a little band about a little over a decade ago, and I was young enough to think I needed a wall of sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't that's been right. able to get rid of it since. Nobody wants them anymore. Yeah, yeah. Back in the day, you used to have. I was so weird. I went to the, the Bono concert uh, a couple weeks ago, and it's so empty because they have the speakers now on top, 
but they're not even big. And the four, you know, the members are on stage, but no other equipment except their, you know, guitars. Right. And it's so weird. I, you know, when I was a kid, you'd go to the concert and you know, go to the Who, and they'd have just an empire of, of, you know, amplifiers behind them. <laughs> yeah. And now it's so much more efficient. But I kind of miss that giant look, you know. It's just so awesome. I know. Great. And now if they have a giant look, I mean, there's maybe one of them is actually producing sound. It's more for show. Yeah, yeah. Well, they should, should at least keep it up for show, just to give it that effect. Yeah. <laughs> and you, All right. you're, you're speaking from experience. You've got this band, Not Dead Yet. Not Dead Yet. And how active it. is that? Oh, uh, we do a couple gigs a year. That's about it. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's more for fun than anything else. And we raise money for causes. Yeah. Uh, but it is fun. It, it's a lot of fun. Just, uh, uh, you know, be a legend in your own mind and never <laughs> drop. And so and it gives you some yeah, a reason to keep, you know, keep playing. Yeah. Practice and stuff. You've been playing drum- drums for a while, right? Well, since I was nine. Yeah. So well, once a drummer, always a drummer. I, I had pretty much, you know, hung up the sticks for about, oh, from the age of 20 till about the age of 45. I hardly ever played. I didn't have a set or anything. And then uh, we, all these friends that I have kind of been in a community with, we all used to, we realized that we, we all used to be in a band and play different instruments. So we thought, let's just jam sometimes. So I went out and bought a junkie set and we started just playing in the basement. And one thing led to another, and now we're world famous. That's how it works. <laughs> now, with your drums on your podcast, you have drum clips that kind of like take the podcast in and out and transition. Is that? Do you record new ones, or are those kind of old ones that you reuse? Yeah, yeah, those are old ones. We got and the sound quality on those is terrible. We have to get some new ones in there. <laughs> and really, you can't even hear the bass drum hardly. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to upgrade those. Plus, I've gotten better since then. So let's. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm always working on my speed metal bass drumming. Yeah, it's so been my big objective the last couple of years. That's awesome, Scott. Can you uh, see us slash hear us? Yes, Doctor Boyd. Hello, Hello yeah. Thanks for joining us. Good to see you. You're kind of in a roaming mode here, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I gotta get away from my boss. <laughs> and so, are, are you doing this through uh, Skype on your phone or something? Yes. Okay. Just, you have a pretty good connection. Yeah. Hey, you know, 4G something. That's cool. Yeah. If you, conti- <laughs> if you continue that wind, though, you're going to have to get out of the windstorm there, Scott. Yeah, yeah. It does kind of sound windy. All right. I'll try to go on mute. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm not talking. Don't speak unless we speak to you, okay? <laughs> All right. Flash the light at me. Yeah, something like <laughs> don't, that. Don't kill it. Annihilate it. Don't kill it. We will say that Scott's in the, in the hurricane. There's yeah. quite a few on these days. Seriously. It's got nothing to do with the warming globe. Let me just reassure everybody. It's nothing to do with that. Yeah. The last 10 years is just a coincidence. How long have you guys been doing this uh, podcast? That's, we're coming up on two years. Yeah. Very, yep. very shortly. Two years. Beer yeah. Bible Bros. So, so uh, are the three of you just friends in real life, or how do you three end up being a. Yeah, we all, two of us, Jeff and I go to the same church, and that's how we met, and Scott I've known for forever, and we like to get together, have a few adult beverages, and talk about God and stuff, so that's kind of how this originated, like a lot of podcasts, and all right. we need to share the world, us, all share, right. <laughs> share us with the world. 
Well, there, there, there you go. Way, way to go, you guys. <laughs> are, are you like uh, seminary graduates or just people interested in the Bible or what? Yeah, it's all amateur. Scott went. Scott did a little. You can tell us a little bit about your Bible college experience. But I, I've got nothing. I have, just just yeah. my own, just reading. I have some Bible college experience. <laughs> what Bible college? <laughs> not not much experience, but uh, it's a it it used to be part of Calvary Chapel, and then it split off uh, to a, an independent. It's very small. I'd say average class size is about three, and that includes the professor. So so it's a tight. Yeah, you get to ask a lot of questions. Good, good. All right. Okay, well, I've got about an hour All right. from right now, so Perfect. let's dive in. Yeah, so you you weren't always writing this tome of a book. How long have you been writing or working on Crucifixion of a Warrior God? Oh, it, it's, uh, it, it was about 10 years before it was published. I, I mean, it's actually going on 11 years now since I started the thing. And uh, uh, it started actually as a different book. I, I was contracted to write a completely different thesis. Um, I was going to try to defend uh, the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament, uh, kind of along the lines of Paul Copan's book, Is God a Moral Monster? Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the arguments he uses are the ones that I was going to use. I just have been collecting them over the years. And, um, but I got, unlike, unlike Paul, I, I got you know, 50 pages into it and, and thought, this just is not selling it. This is not working. This is not compelling. Um, and if I can't be convinced by my own, my own arguments, I can't expect <laughs> people to be convinced. And um, so I, I had to scrap that. And plus, I had really come to see how um, the, the, the task isn't just to show, you know, to make God look a little less nasty uh, and to put the best spin on, on these portraits. The, the task is to show how they, along with all Scripture, bear witness to Jesus, right? Because Jesus says it's all about me. Um, and, and, and so it's not enough just to say, Hey, God had good reasons for telling his people to slaughter babies. Um, you have to show how slaughtering the command to slaughter babies points to, to Jesus and especially points to his suffering on the cross. Uh, cause the cross is like the thematic center of everything he's about. At least that's what I argue in, in right. my books. And so, um, that's a much harder task than, than, than trying to f- kind of find a good reason why he would want the slaughtering of the children and the babies and everybody else mm-hmm. and even the animals. Um, so I had to put the thing on hold and then that started me down the, tra- the trajectory that led to the, uh, uh, crucifixion of the warrior God 10 years later, but it's been a fun adventure. Yeah. And you had a couple of books come out in between how, how you juggle working on this massive work. And then you had benefit of the doubt and present perfect and myth of a Christian religion, I think. I think myth of a Christian religion was before I started, uh, no, maybe, you know, I think it was. You're right. Well, you know, this is what happens when you have ADD. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're yeah. constantly I'm like this. Oh, this is interesting. Oh, here's the thing that's interesting. Yeah. So I'm always taking, you know, putting on things on hiatus. In fact, okay, truth be told, um, this, this, the Christmas of the Warrior God, it was it, and all the other books that have come out since 2001 have been while I was supposed to be working on this, the third book that was going to be part of this trilogy. Um, that it got at war and Satan and the problem of evil were the first part, first and second parts. And then the myth of the blueprint was supposed to be volume three. And um, I actually wrote 311 pages on of that book uh, and decided that it just was not very good. Um, and, you, and you threw out a 311 pages. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, 
That's a good. A it's a good filter. <laughs> You've just, well, that's not working. I, I I thought it was. See, it was the kind of thing where uh, I thought I was prepared enough to write this thing, and and so I was going to write it, and then kind of fill in footnotes as I went along. But um, man, I, I started coming upon stuff that uh, when when you see the myth of the blueprint is going to try to defend the thesis that. The core of the classical view of God, the idea that God is timeless and immutable and impassable, right. um, and and on top of that, the idea that God uh, determines everything, those come from assumptions that were inherited from the church, by the church, from Hellenistic philosophy. Um, it, it goes back to Parmenides and even before that, the pre-Socratics. And uh, but that, to wade into that and to challenge that, and to try to argue that it has a pagan, not biblical origin, uh, you are you're walking onto a minefield, and there's a thousand and nineteen defenders or people, opponents of every point you're going to make. And um, uh, to make it academically respectable, you've got to read all of that, you've got to interact with all that, and more than half of it's in German or in French, which I had let get rusty. And so, um, <laughs> and then there's a lot of stuff isn't translated, so you got to learn Latin. And, and so it was a massive, massive project. So I, I scrapped my first thing and said, okay, I gotta take a couple of years to research this stuff. And so I take breaks from it and do these projects. But I, I, I'm now back at Myth of the Blueprint. I am gonna get that done. Before I die, I gotta get that thing done. Wow. Nice. I mean, I people might argue that I let English get rusty and you let two other languages get rusty, so. Yeah, well, it's pretty good. My Hebrew is completely gone now. Um, I, I've got enough to recognize, you know, the alphabet and to use a concordance, but that's about it. And, and Greek's not much better. It, it's the thing, if you don't use it, you lose it. And uh, just in the busyness of life, it's hard to maintain those things. But, and now, you know, you know now they've got so many uh, tools to help you that I, I think it, it, it's good to learn, like, maybe one semester of Greek and one semester of Hebrew, just so you know the alphabet and some things about the grammar or whatever. But if you got that, you're able to use all these tools that will do all the rest of the work for you. And and so I, I, I tell people, get at the most a year of the languages. Uh, and if you're doing any more than that, plan on getting six, because it will take six years of, of, of studying that to be at an expert level enough so you can actually argue with the experts. Otherwise, we all just got to trust the, the authorities. Hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's not a disadvantage not having those languages in there. That little bit of advice was for free. Awesome. <laughs> I got some seminary profs mad at me now. Hey, uh, real real quick. Um, now, you, the the those the timeless, immutable. Um, he determines everything. So I know at least a couple of those are, you know, you get into the whole middle knowledge and Calvinist and determinism. But the timeless part is that is that separate from those, fr from that idea, or is that kind of a part of the immutability, or that he changes or doesn't change if he's timeless or not? Well, that... you will find uh, people who are broadly in the classical theistic camp, um, but they'll opt out or redefine one or more of these attributes. Uh, you know, so you have some people in in the classical camp. That now are trying to qualify immutability. Uh, a, a large number are trying to qualify impassibility now, um, and and you'll find some who are temporalists who who deny that God is a temporal. But um, 
I think Aquinas is the most consistent uh, classical and, and probably the, the most thorough uh, defender of the classical view of God. And he argues that immutability, if you take it uh, to its logical conclusion, implies atemporality. Uh, because God doesn't even change in its God's experience, right? There's, there's nothing new that happens to God, because if anything new happened to God, um, or if he ever did anything new, that would show that he wasn't pure actuality. Actus purus is one of the you know, central defining aspects of God. And, and classical theists have always argued that to have potentiality that's not actualized is an imperfection. I would argue against that, but they, they would argue that, that uh, uh, the perfection of God means that there's no potential to change, and if there's no change, there's no sequence, and no sequence, there's no time. And so God is non-sequential. He's an eternally frozen, non-sequential this. <laughs> and, and Aquinas even says, or yeah, Aquinas says that uh, God only knows himself. Uh, God's knowledge of us doesn't depend on us existing. Rather, we exist because God knows us. And he knows us only because he knows himself as our creator. So he only knows, and, and so Aquinas goes further and says that, so the, the, the relationship between God and the world is real to the world, but not to God. God only knows himself. And this is just a Christianized version of Aristotle's unmoved mover. Yeah. And it's all very consistent, once you accept the fundamental assumptions. Yeah, that's that is that's interesting, interesting stuff. Okay. Well, I suppose. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I suppose we might ask you to define open theism at this point. I was going to get there a little bit later on, but do you consider yourself an open theist, or is that just what people refer to you as, or what would you call yourself, and what is that? Well, I, that's the term. I don't like the term, but right. that's the term that's being used. Uh, I wish that they had. The reason I don't like it is because. It makes it about God. The same thing as, as though we have a unique view of God, and, and we, we really don't have a unique view of God. Um, although it, it's certainly not—I mean, it's unique compared to you know, classical theism. But uh, the fact that we have a, a God who is impacted by people and relational and all those kind of things—most uh, Arminians would say that. So that, that's not really the distinctive point. The distinctive point about this view is that it's about creation. And, and we hold that the creation is an open, not, not a settled, pre-settled creation. Um, and, and so the future is partly comprised of possibilities. Um, and since God is omniscient and knows reality exactly as it is, God knows the future as partly comprised of possibilities. So that, I, 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 I would like to refer to it as the open view of the future, not, not, the, uh, not open theism. And the, the reason that that's important is that if you make it about God, well then, People think you're talking, the issue is a debate about God's knowledge. You know, what is, what's the scope or the perfection of God's knowledge? And they, they think it's a debate about omniscience. Uh, it's, it's not. It, it, we grant with everybody else that God knows absolutely everything, uh, at least the consistent open theists. There's a few out there who would say God knows everything that can be known, but that's just a way of denying omniscience. If anything exists, then God has to know it if he's, if he's omniscient. Um, and, and so it, it's gotten, and so you have books written like, you know, uh, what does God know and when does he know it? Or how much does God know? Uh, in fact, I, every evangelical opponent of, of open theism that I've read today, and I think I've read them all, at least the, the theological opponents have misconstrued the issue, uh, making it an issue about God rather than creation. And so they, they, they all allege that, that open theists deny God's omniscience. And it's just silliness. It's just 
I, I don't know whether that's intentional to try to make it look bad or if they just don't get it. But but I've been saying for 15 years, it's not about God's omniscience. It's not about God's knowledge. It's not about God. Can you give an example of of uh, someone that would argue against that you're speaking about? Um, what what example would they leverage their argument with? Well, you mean a, a, a biblical uh, right. argument yes. or, or an argument that it's about God's knowledge? E- Either, either or. Yeah, yeah. Well, they'll point to like Isaiah fifty-three uh, or uh, no, Isaiah forty-five um, and forty-six, where uh, the Lord says, um, "I've told you uh, what's going to happen before it comes to pass, so that you know that I am the Lord and not your dead idols." Okay, so they'll universalize that passage. And say, "Look, God uh, here knows all the future, and He tells them ahead of time." Uh, so that uh, they'll know that he's the Lord. The thing is, if you look, my response would be that he's speaking about a very specific thing here, uh, about what he's going to do with Cyrus and and about letting the people go. And he says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to turn the heart of the king. He's going to let you do it, go. You're going to return to the land. And I'm telling you that I, that these things, so you'll know that I am the Lord. So it's not about him having a special kind of a knowledge about the future. It's about him having a, being the master of history. And look what I can do. I'll tell you ahead of time so you know that I'm the one doing it. Well, Open Theists always grant that whatever God wants to do, he foreknows. You know, he, he, he can do whatever he wants. Uh, it's just insofar as he's empowered agents to have free will. And right. we have the capacity to go this way or that way, right. uh, that the future is comprised of possibilities to that degree. Yeah, and because I, I, I think all, all Christians, they, they acknowledge the vastness of God. And no no I don't think there's a Christian that's going to, say that things that anything is hidden from God's sight so the the important thing for us is that the the clear teachings on on you know praying and seeking God and asking asking him for you know um, you know whatever reasonable things uh, let's say um, but but that's that's the important part is that is that somehow whatever what what we do in, in asking him for something uh, can affect change in our space and time, right? That so that the the arguments or the philosophy or the theology behind it uh, shouldn't change. Well, you're that, right, Scott. That clear teaching. Well, the thing is, is here, here's the thing: is whatever your view is, whether you're an open theist or a Calvinist or Arminian, you're going to pray like an open theist. <laughs> you know, if you're praying, in fact, you, you can't. You're going to live like an open theist. Uh, every decision you make, think about this, you, you, you deliberate about possibilities as though it was up to you and only up to you to resolve those possibilities, and there's no other way to act. You can't possibly deliberate about a decision in a way that illustrates your conviction that you believe that what you're going to decide has already been, is already settled, or whether God settled it or it's just somehow settled. Uh, there's no way to act upon that belief. Now, some philosophers would argue that that like Charles Pierce would argue, that a belief that you can't possibly illustrate um, that it could make a difference in your action is is really a pseudo-belief. An authentic belief is is that upon which you can act and and, and it can make a difference in in your life. So uh, you could go, you could believe this and act that way, but if you believe this, you'll act that way. But when it comes to decision-making, you've only got one belief to act on, and that is that it's up to you to decide. And so open theism is, is just a way of saying um, that the way you experience life is actually real. That, that you know, things really are up to you uh, to, to some degree. 
So there you go. Yeah. My next thought was going to ask to ask about what weaknesses open theism best confronts in like a traditional classical theism. And that, that seems like one of them right there. Well, yeah, it's just a practical, pragmatic argument for um, the, you know, the, the existence of God. I, I, I would argue that, that uh, it, it presupposes a more majestic view of God. Um, and, and here's why, okay? So it, one of the main concerns that people have about this open view of the future is that they feel nervous about it. They get nervous uh, because they think, well, man, you, you mean then if God doesn't know, exactly what's going to happen to me or what I'm going to decide or what's going to, you know, well then, uh, how do I know that he can be Lord of history? How do I know that he's got a plan for my life? How do I, how can he, you know, guarantee that he can bring good out of evil, that he's always going to be working for the better? Um, how do I even know he's going to win in the end? And so you have people like Bruce Ware in his uh, book, God's Lesser Glory. Uh, he says that the, the God of open theism, and he names me in, uh, in, in several points. He says, uh, the, the God of Obatheism is a, a hand-wringing, nail-biting deity. So he's nervous. What's going to happen? Uh, who can do, do nothing more than guess uh, about the future and, um, uh, yeah, and hope for the best. Yeah, a a nail-biting, hand-wringing deity. Now, here's the thing. That tells me a lot about Bruce Ware's view of God. God bless him. He's got a special worth. But it, it tells me about his view of God. Uh, if his God wasn't in control of every detail, um, or at least didn't have a crystal ball about the future, he'd be very nervous, wringing his hands, because he wouldn't be, you know, he, he'd call and guess. But that view of God presupposes a God who's got limited intelligence. Because it, it only, it, it, we, beings who have limited intelligence get stressed out when you have to anticipate possibilities, as opposed to uh, a, a settled uh, future. Uh, because you have to spread your intelligence thin to cover the possibilities. So if I'm playing you in chess and, and, and there's a million dollars on who's going to win, uh, I'll be more stressed out than if I'm working in an assembly line where I can I know exactly what I have to do, you know, uh, the next moment. Because um, there's, you know, however many trillion possible moves that can be made in a game, and I have to anticipate every one of those, right? Mm-hmm. But see, if God has unlimited intelligence, unlimited, you can't split up infinity, right? You can't divide that. And so... Um, he doesn't have to spread his intelligence thin to cover any number of possibilities. Uh, a God of infinite intelligence can anticipate every, each and every one of a trillion, trillion to the trillionth power of possibilities as though it was the only possibility. All right? Mm-hmm. So God anticipates every possible future. And, and realize here, every day you make a thousand decisions and that branch off into different futures, right? But So take every, every free agent ever created throughout history and the trillion a possible future trees that branch off from their life, you know, through the, all the decisions they make throughout their, the span of their life, could God anticipate each and every one of them as though it was the only one. And so the God of open theism anticipates every possible future with the same effectiveness as the God of traditional theism anticipates the one future. And so I can say as confidently as, as any theist that whatever comes to pass, God's been anticipating this very thing from the foundation of the world as though it had to happen. And he's got a plan in place that he's been preparing for the foundation of the world to bring it, to turn it to his advantage and, and, and my advantage and the advantage of the kingdom. It's just that an open theist is going to be so confident that God's so smart that any number of other things could have happened. And had they happened, I'd be saying the exact same thing. So you don't lose any providential advantage by holding to an open future. You just get a smarter God. Hmm. Wow. Uh, 
Go ahead, okay, Scott. Uh, okay. Uh, did I say that already? Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so is there – so if we have – if we take uh, on a spectrum hyper-Calvinism uh, uh, and then – open theism on the other side is theism is theism in the middle I, I, i'm not sure i'm not i, I kind of lost the difference between open theism and theism well theism is just a belief in god uh, okay okay yeah so it's just a, it, it, we're all theists if you believe in, in, in the existence of god and so then the, the spectrum would be you've got open theists it's usually construed like this you've got open theists on one extreme and you got calvinists on the other extreme and then you've got uh, Arminians, or as I like to refer to them, wonderfully confused people in the middle. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. That hold that that uh, we have free will, but God foreknows uh, every decision that we're going to make. And then you have Molinism, who says that God not only foreknows decisions we will make, but but foreknows every decision we would make in every other possible future, every other possible world. Uh, Greg, is there some? Is there something? within your life just in the spirit of the way that you're living that based off your beliefs you have um just a a good crisp freedom um in your day-to-day ongoings i'm not sure i understand the question well uh, i'm 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 thinking i'm thinking like when we talk so you're describing um you're describing if you want to call it open theism or just this way um, of the trillions and trillions to the power of trillion, um, mm-hmm. and God, you know, He's got this one. He knows the one thing. Sure. Um, and and so this is a belief of yours, yes. Yeah. And yes. and so we come to these beliefs, and then we live out our beliefs in our relationships and just how we do life. Sure. Okay, so Jeff's our practical guy. He's looking for a practical application well, here. Well, my my thing is, I love the the path, the branches that it all takes. So I'm curious, through it's a big big idea, but through your lifetime, um, have there been particular branches where you went off on a fork in the road and? uncovered this or had a an aha moment where you're like this is synergy i i've i found some i found a core um, or were you just born an open theist <laughs> when did that happen yeah uh, yeah uh, well yeah i mean every decision we make is a fork in the road you know every deliberation is a fork sure. in the road and, and i i can look back and and you can see you know man you know if, if i if i decided things differently there my life would be in a totally different place. Or you wonder, kind of like, what would happen if I would have went behind, you know, with, went, went through door B instead of door A? Or if I would have chosen this gal as opposed to that gal, or if that gal had chosen me sure. instead of him? You know? sure. And and uh, uh, yeah, it's an interesting, it, it's an interesting thing to look back and, and realize all of the contingencies, <laughs> right? The of millions of contingencies that have led to right here, right now. And had anything been different, you know, we might not be having this conversation. Yep. You know. And, and that could not just goes back to my life, uh, but but to my mom and dad, and 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 then all their relatives and every decision they made and decisions that impacted them. And, and you know, I, I tell this story a lot. I found out a number of years ago that uh, if if an ancestor of mine in the 11th century, what happened is the Boyds were uh, royalty in Scotland. 
we, we, we were uh, keepers of the palace, just one notch down from the feudal lord. And we were knights, you know, and we were nobility. We lived in castles. And then one of my idiot ancestors kidnapped the feudal lord's daughter and held her for ransom. And so the feudal lord got his feudal lord buddies and kicked us out of Scotland. Um, uh, we were on the island of Butte. That's where the word Boyd comes from. And uh, then we were kicked out of Scotland and migrated down to Ireland and got into trouble down there and then had to go over to France. And we've been vagabonds and, you know, bad reputations ever since. But if it wasn't for that stupid ancestor, I would have been born in nobility, man. I, I, I'd have a castle over there in, in, in Scotland. And I'd be wearing <laughs> kilts, you know, playing a bagpipe, eating my lucky charms. Uh, but uh, instead, I'm a nobody. You know, I, I could have been a contender. I could have been there. Uh, so, you know, it, it's chaos theory. It's the butterfly effect. And and right. I, I just, there's something beautiful about that contingency. I, I, I there's, it, it's, um, I, I, I just, you know, I think there's something in God. We're in his image, right? Mm -hmm. And if, if we, I think we are most alive when we're living on the edge, when we're taking adventures, when we're not playing it safe, we take reasonable risks. Um, we're most fully alive there. Is there nothing in God that corresponds to that? We love novelty. We love creativity, you know, art and music. And, and it's the non-determinedness of it, uh, the spontaneousness of it, you know, improvise. Improvisational jazz is like is is genius because it's got a structure, but yet there's spontaneity and 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 there's fluidness. And I just think that 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 says something about the nature of reality and says something about the nature of God. I have a, a book on this, by the way, uh, called uh, Cosmic Dance um, or Cosmic Dancing. It's about the integration of science and and the open view of of, mm. of uh, reality and how different branches of science are pointing to this. But yeah, I, I just think. Um, if, if, if there's nothing in us, if there's nothing in God that corresponds to our love of adventure and creativity and novelty and spontaneity, uh, then then those things can't be godly. They just mm -hmm. can't be godly. It seems to me, apart from all scripture and every other consideration, that seems intuitively off. So I, I think that Aristotle and that whole trajectory that leads to Aquinas, that thought that potentiality um, in God was an imperfection, had it exactly wrong. I, I would define God as omnipotential. Uh, and, and and he empowers not just the act as purest, the pure actuality, but he, he empowers others to also be actuality makers. We, we create things. Every decision we make is a, is a creation of ours. And he wants us to be, in, in, in our own little way, co-creators. Uh, not waiting for the future, but creating the future. So do you see this coming out in your books? I mean, is this why you're driven to just continue to put your thoughts on on the page and... And bring well, it maybe it like this uh, that I and, and I was this long before I was a, a open theist or even a, a theologian of any sort or even a Christian. But uh, I, see, I always like to explore new ideas. Um, I, I've always had this phobia of groupthink, and and if everyone's saying this is the way it is, I, there's I always have a suspicion like, well, what if it's not? And, I, and that's just. I think it's part of my oppositional defiance disorder. You know, as a kid, I just had a bucket the system on everything. And, and I went to a Catholic school where conformity was everything. We all had to dress exactly alike and think alike. And I just was, I got like claustrophobia, you know, intellectual claustrophobia and rebelled against it. And I think that, that so I've always had that kind of the adventures of ideas. I loved like, what if, what if, what about, what about? And, um, uh, and just kind of floating things out there. Um, so maybe I was predestined to be an open theist. <laughs> I like it. Paradox. Love that. And that, that makes me think like, oh yeah, I'm with Greg. I'm in Greg's boat. But then when I realized that Greg's in the same boat with me, I'm like, well, gotta go. Cause 
So <laughs> no, we're not unique. <laughs> so you no, throw no, yeah. him out of the boat, or, or is he staying in the boat and you're jumping off? I, I'm jumping out. I'm a jumper. What you don't want is novelty for novelty's sake, you know. Right. And, and it's some in, in liberal circles, you sometimes get this. I or I get this sense that like there's a contest who can be more outlandish, you mm. know, and who can be. And and I, I no, I, I I it always should be about searching for truth, and uh, um and you believe things on the merits of the case that can be made for them, but um, um I think it's always good to say, well, is that is that the only way to think about this? Are there other ways of looking at it? Make your case. Yeah, and I guess the idea, to take my analogy, you know, jumping in the same boat of just, you know, going against the, the call it against the grain or not following, you know, the, uh, the masses is, uh, yeah, you're not doing it for novelty's sake. So, hey, there's a little lifeboat that's a part of our boat. I'm going to go and jump in it and go out to that island and, uh, you know, find something new. But it, it still has to do with finding truth. So right, right, right. I get that. And, and, and you don't want to be, I, I think it's arrogant to be disrespectful of tradition. I, I, I think mm. the, that carries a lot of weight. Uh, a lot of people have thought this through before you, and it's just arrogant if you think that, you know, the intellectual tradition starts with you. I, I, that's why I think it's very important to be, if you're going to be a, a thinker in the church and trying to help other Christians get clear on their beliefs about God and whatever, uh, that you're, that you're always corresponding with the church tradition, you know, and so in crucifixion of the Word of God, I'm always dialoguing with with Luther and with Calvin and with Augustine and Aquinas, uh, because I mean they're my dialogue partners as well as contemporary thinkers. But you've got to kind of know, and I don't think we have to repeat what they said and, and have to conform to their views. But you do if you're going to part from the tradition, you have to do it with good reason. Mm. Yeah, you know? and so there's got to be some sounding board. I mean, right? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that that carries a, a lot of weight. Scott, are you gearing up to say something? No, I had to. I had to go oh, back. Okay. I, got right. I had to go back to my desk, and uh, okay. nice. my boss is contacting me. I'm listening though. Okay. Oh, okay. So I want to move on to nonviolence, but I got. I feel like I have to ask you about prayer and open theism. It seems like there would almost be more of an emphasis on you having an active prayer life, which is something. I've struggled with on and off. Like, what is it for? Do, do we really need to? Does God really need us to pray? Do you have any thoughts uh, on that? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you, you know, I, I used to struggle with this idea that, um, um, you know, if, 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 if the future is already settled, whether God settled it, uh, like Calvinists hold, or whether it's just somehow mysteriously settled, as Arminians hold, God, if God knows it's settled, he knows that it, that it can't go other than the way it's already settled. Um, and it, it always gave me a sense, not just in prayer, but in other activities, that I'm kind of involved in a pro forma, you know, thing. Uh, it's like it's like serving on some committees in academia. You know, I, this is one of the reasons why I quit being a professor, because you had to serve on these committees. And uh, academics tend to like to hear themselves talk a lot. And so we, we would talk about things, but it often would happen that we'd make a decision and uh, – and and then we so we and we pass it up to the higher powers. Well, they do something differently, and 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 it would become clear that they were going to do what they were going to do all along. And they just wanted to give the appearance that we had something to do with it. And I got so ticked off about that because I don't want to sit here and talk 
two hours a week with these people for six months about an issue and then realized that it was the, the conclusion was foregone from the start. And that's a pro forma committee. Well, if, all life starts to feel like a pro forma performance. If, if, uh, if, if it's like going through a, a, a movie rerun, okay, this thing's, it, it's already been determined and now we just got to play out the role. And it's hard to pray if, if the outcome, Lord, you know, change the circumstance, but if the outcome's already settled, then, um, I don't know. Now, there's there's philosophical ways of nuancing it such that you you know you say both and, mm-hmm. but um, it's in the open view. Things really do depend on what you're gonna do. Uh, this is what gives our life significance, but it also is what makes us morally responsible. It's like if you're walking on a street and there's a house on fire and you hear a lady screaming inside, uh, you know that her life. Uh, may depend on whether you're going to have the courage to go in there and rescue her or not. Uh, and so it, it, things hang in the balance. We know that. If you if you get drunk and go out driving, uh, you know, you might kill somebody who otherwise wouldn't have died that night. And so things are up to you. The same thing is true of prayer. Uh, in fact, the way I see scripture is that there are more, in the Bible, there are more if-then clauses associated with prayer than any other human activity. If my people will pray, then they will hear from heaven, mm. then I will heal their land. But if you don't, you're not going to hear from heaven, and you're not going to have the land healed. Mm. So things really mm. hang in the balance. And and uh, and so if that gives prayer this 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 crucial importance. Um, I, I'm not going to get out of bed at 2 in the morning because, you know, like a lot of people say, well, we pray not to try to change uh, the will of God or to change circumstances. We pray to change ourselves, right? This is how God changes us. And that's true. We change through prayer. But I'm not going to get out of bed at 2 in the morning because I want to change myself. I'll wait till 7, thank you very much. But if I think a life might be hanging in the balance, uh, I'll get out of bed. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, so, yeah, it, 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 really, it really puts a, a strong emphasis on that. Prayer really makes a difference. And you can find many examples of this in the Bible where in the course of, you know, things were, the future was changed for, because of prayer or not because of the lack of prayer. So is it God holding holding out unless we're praying, or is there something different going on? Well, the way I see it is like this: uh, you know, if if uh, the whole if this whole thing that we're involved in right now, if this adventure is really about learning how to love, love God, love ourselves, love our neighbor as ourselves, then and love is all about communication. Uh, relationships are communication, not just verbal, but insofar as you are related to another person. Who you are is genuinely being conveyed to them, and who they are is being genuinely conveyed to uh, yes, them. Yes. And, uh, um, and so husbands, listen up on this. Love is about communication. Um, well, if, if the whole thing is about learning how to love, then the whole thing is about learning how to communicate. And so it makes sense for God to put a, a, a premium on relationship, right? Uh, and, and so as I see it, it's, it's like there's, you know, God could do everything unilaterally, but doesn't want to do that. Because then we wouldn't be decision makers who are empowered to love, and we couldn't do otherwise. Um, and so he 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 leaves some things up to us. And and prayer, I think, is is like imagine it like this: like there's a reservoir of power, uh, kingdom power, that God just sets aside, like a bank account, and He covenants because He wants to put a premium on on the need for His people to talk to Him and to come in agreement with Him. Uh, this power is to be used to accomplish a category. A, a, accomplish things that God would love to accomplish, but he covenants that this power will not be released unless his bride agrees with him. 
it's like a, a, a one of these bank loans that has to be co-signed by both the bank and by you to, to be released. Uh, well, prayer is co-signing on this kingdom power, and and so it's released. And God generally wants to have it done, but he'll be frustrated if his bride doesn't communicate with him to get it done. Mm-hmm. And so when we pray, I think we're just releasing kingdom power into this world and into circumstances. God already wanted it released, but but this is stuff where he, he wants he wants a bride who's got sass. He wants a bride, <laughs> a bride who's going to co-rule with him, right? You can't co-rule on the throne if you're a little you know doormat bride, milk toast to push over. No, we're supposed to have authority, and uh, and prayer is our authority. At least it's, it's one of the main ways that we have authority uh, to begin to co-rule with Christ uh, here in this world. That's good. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> as he bows. Um, hey, I almost Zach. saw the kilt. <laughs> oh, he almost saw the kilt. I'll be looking under my kilt. <laughs> All right, Scott, go ahead. What? Uh, was there um, a particular reason why you asked that question, or um, you, no, well, you know what's it, going on in your head? Oh, we don't have time for that right now. But I, I did admit that prayer is an on and off struggle for me, and and like, what is, what is the point? What is the real purpose of it? Is it just, as Greg said, some people say, which I'm guilty of sometimes, it's more about changing my posture and changing me as opposed to actually engaging in the creation and affecting change uh, directly through prayer, which I, I wrestle with that. So I don't, and I, I don't fake well. So pretending to pray for something when my heart's not in it is something I don't do easily. So that's why I asked it because it seems like the, the open theism puts more of an emphasis on your active engagement in creation. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I wish I, I could uh, you know, promise you that, that if you become an open theist, that you'll uh, instantly become a prayer warrior, but it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Um, because you know, the thing is that, that, that I, I, believe, I believe it makes a difference, right? But it takes faith to believe it makes a difference. And, and I don't know how it's been in your life, but uh, I've got more prayers where I don't see the difference than prayers where I do in any kind of demonstrable way see the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it takes faith to keep plugging on. You know, it, it is, especially if you're wired kind of carnal like I am, I'm very, you know, this worldly oriented. Spirituality doesn't come natural to me. And so, um, yeah, I tend to be, pra- I want to do with things that work. Uh, and so I can believe that prayer makes a difference and I do. And that's what gets me by but it, it, it's a struggle. Um, it, it's especially a struggle to pray with faith, with any kind of ex- expectancy, mm-hmm. especially when your heart's been crushed a couple of times because you prayed for things and, and didn't come through. Right. And I can theologize that and explain it, but it doesn't, it doesn't uh, take away the wound in the heart when you really laid it all on the table for someone to be healed or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, 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 let's just be honest about it. it, it it's, it's, a, it's a hard gig, uh, it, it, which is partly why it's so important to be disciplined about it because it's, it, it's, I mean, I know some people, they're going to lady priest for me two hours a day, you know, it, it, from Nigeria. In fact, I, I found in my church, Nigerians, I don't know what it is about Nigerians, but those people pray like I've never seen people pray. And they, they go into it and they go on and it's just beautiful. And, and they got authority over that. And, uh, that's not me. That is just not me. It's, it's, uh, it's like a decision I got to make. And, um, you know, I do it out of obedience. I, I, I love to commune with God. You know, put on music and just hang out with God and, and love and go places in my, you know, imagination and stuff. I love to do that. 
uh, it's the intercessory prayer that I really struggle with. Uh, that that's this is because hmm. I, I, in my case, I don't you know, I, I know people who claim to have you know, be miracle workers, but I I'm not one of them. <laughs> Which I was, I wish this, I could pray for you. Just just yeah, yeah, no, boy, it's not a miracle worker. <laughs> I, I've had, I think, two, maybe three, I, I, where I, I, I really think I have seen a miracle. Like, you know, bam, there's really a difference. One just this last year, which is really cool. Wow. He's all bent over, comes up, and I pray for her, and and uh, and she starts getting better. So I keep praying for her, and bam, by the end of it, she's like moving her arms, and she couldn't before. So praise God for those little breakthroughs. Yeah. I just, and my theology says that ought to be the norm. Uh, and that's the greatest, uh, you know, and I, I'm with you. I, I, I don't like to pretend. I, I want to be very honest, even when it's not in my interest to be honest. But honestly, the greatest, the greatest argument against my theology is, is that you don't see more of the miracles that you ought to be seeing. Uh, the kingdom of theology, and uh, um, yeah, that's just, I gotta just say it. I've said that in the debate de with atheists. I, I, I and they say, I'll compare it doesn't work. And I, I say, well, it does sometimes, but I, I, I got to concede a lot of your point there. Uh, that, that's your best argument. Play that card. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of times we pray and then we don't see the miraculous in that moment. But and maybe we don't see what we prayed for over time. Yet maybe the miracle was something that we didn't even realize was impacting God's glory in this in this world. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't have a, I, don't, I don't have a good ex, I mean I don't have a good example. But I I even think about my own my own life. I mean I'm I've only been a believer for about seven years, and but as I look back, you know those forks in the road, those those points where I'm fairly certain people were praying for miracles in my life, especially in my family and my marriage, and. Um, they didn't see it. They didn't see it happen. And, right, and right. talking with people in the past and, uh, f you know, like friends of my wife, they they said all along we were praying and just praying for a miracle. And and yeah. then one day, you know, all of a sudden things that, you know, light went on and 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 then people come back and like, if if that's not a miracle, I don't know what was because, you know, you don't come sure. out of a black hole and, you know, come out into the light unless it's not just God just shining his light on, you know, the... Yeah, the, the, yeah. and, and uh, I'm totally with you on that. And uh, we'll only see um, the... I, I will take it on faith that the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective, uh, James 5.16. And I take that on faith. And when I'm praying, I'm trying to visualize that because I, 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 I will believe I don't believe there's any uh, uh, frivolous or wasted prayer. You're always leaving the situation more kingdom than it would have been had you not prayed. Mm. Uh, but that's a faith thing, okay? I don't see it with the visible eye usually, but I'll take it on faith. And, and only when we are, you know, get the the 2020 hindsight of heaven, can we really look back and see how 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 much worse things would have been. If we hadn't prayed, you know, maybe the prayer for protection didn't save that one child. But if he hadn't prayed it, there would have been three kids dead, you know. Um, and so it, it's important. I, you know, I tell yeah. myself that kind of stuff all the while to stay engaged, you know, because that's that's part of the faith thing. Um, but uh, but it still stands that, you know, 
the pattern you see in Jesus' ministry is that he's going around and healing folks and delivering folks all the time. Um, and and he says that greater works than these you're going to do. And you find it with the, in the book of Acts, you know, they have that power. Um, and occasionally in history, you have these outbreaks, you know, like they have these revivals where it seems like there's an explosion of that stuff. But invariably, they all die down. And, uh, and then things kind of return more to your standard, normal, non-miraculous things. I, 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 the way I kind of think about it is this. I, I, you know, this world's under this demonic cloud. The New Testament describes it as that. Satan is the principality and power of the air. And I mean, we, it, we're under the grips of the evil one. And so it's sort of like um, uh, clouds over this earth, dark clouds over this earth. And the sun's out there shining. And the sun is the glory and the power of God. And, and, and the, 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 the sun can shine through the principalities and powers uh, to some degree. And so we have some miracles and people get saved and whatever, but it's not like the demonstrable kind of stuff that Jesus had. But once in a while, and for far for variables that we don't even know about, and far too many for us to ever calculate, but there's a, an opening in the cloud. Uh, there's a hole gets poked in the cloud, so the sun comes pouring down and bam for a season. And usually, sometimes it's related to one person, sometimes it's a group. Uh, sometimes it lasts as much as a generation, maybe, you know, kind of two generations, but it starts to die off. But then that, that, that hole closes up again. And then 100 years later, there's another cloud. And sometimes it lasts a generation, sometimes it lasts a week. Uh, but um, oh, thank God for those clouds. All we can do, since we don't know anything about that, is just keep on, keep on plowing ahead. Mm. And uh, maybe we'll have a cloud breakthrough one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's that. That's the, uh, that's at Hebrews eleven, where um, you know those things were written for our benefit, so that we know that you know get what God has done, and then we have something that we look forward to. We believe in His promises. Go ahead, Zach. Yeah, yeah very good. Yeah, I just want to make sure we we're dangerously low on time, and we got to talk about your book and and violence or lack thereof. Give, give us the pitch. By the way, uh, the pitch about the book. Well, just like. A crucif the crucifixion of the or crucifixion of the warrior God, and you're tackling the the violent portrayals of God in the Old Testament. Uh, is does this go beyond Old Testament? Are you saying God is non-violent for all time, always, or is it just kind of tackling the specific passages? Okay, no, it, it's um. So I have crucifixion of the warrior God, which is the academic version. Uh, it's two volumes, about fifteen hundred pages. That one's so for Scott. If you're a geek, you want to get that because that's where you get to all the arguments. Uh, the popular version is called Cross Vision. That one's for me. Uh, making sense of the Old Testament violence. Uh, but both of them argue this thesis that, you know, A, uh, that Jesus isn't just one revelation among others. Uh, he is the revelation that culminates and surpasses all others. And I spend, you know, in Chris Bixon, Lawyer God, over 100 pages arguing that. Um, the New Testament, so we, we should never be putting Jesus alongside of other pictures of God. Rather, we should be interpreting every other portrait of God in the Bible through the lens of Jesus. And then I argue that the center of what Jesus is all about is the cross. Um, it's not that it's not the cross in, as distinct from his life and teachings, but it's rather the cross as a thematic center of his life and teachings. The cross is the culmination of everything Jesus was really about. It's, it's the through line that connects everything together, okay? And so if we're to, re if to, if we're to read everything through the lens of, of Christ, uh, well, then it means we should read everything through the lens of the cross. The cross becomes the hermeneutic, the hermeneutical principle by which we should be reading and interpreting all things. 
And all scripture is there to point us to Jesus' uh, cross-centered life and ministry. And he's, he says that explicitly in, in Luke 24. Uh, when he, It says that he op- after the resurrection, he opened up their eyes so they could see how, how, this, how all scripture uh, uh, pointed to the Son of Man suffering and dying uh, and rising again before he went into glory. And so uh, this, this project is about what happens when we look at the cross when we look at these violent portraits of God through the lens of the cross, and I argue that part of the the cross-centered nature of Jesus' life and teachings has to do with nonviolence, that that the call of the kingdom is to be willing to die even for your enemies, uh, that that we're to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us, do good to those who despitefully use us, says in Luke six, uh, pray for those uh, who who are against you, and then she says that you may be. This is Matthew 5.45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So loving like the Father loves, uh, loving indiscriminately, like the, like the rain falls and like the sun shines, Jesus says, that is the criteria for being considered a child of God, according to Jesus. Uh, and, and, he, and he says, in contrast to that eye for eye, tooth for tooth command that you have three times in the Old Testament, I'm telling you to don't resist an evildoer. Okay, and, and the word anthestami in Greek, which is the word not resist there, um, it doesn't mean do nothing, but it does mean never respond in kind. Uh, to, you know, push for, for push, gunshot for gunshot. Uh, you can get in the way uh, and you can lay down your life, uh, but, but you're not allowed to retaliate uh, in any kind of violent way. And, and I, I see that as being a, 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 the, the nonviolence, the self-sacrificial, enemy-loving, nonviolent nature of God is what is what is the presupposition of the call for kingdom people to be enemy loving, uh, and self-sacrificial and nonviolent. Um, and now if the cross reveals what God's really like, it reveals what God's always like. And that's what creates this tremendous problem with the portraits of God in the old Testament. Cause you've got many portraits that are look, look antithetical to that. You know, God commanding the Israelites to slaughter every man, woman, child, every infant, uh, and even all the animals. Um, and, and, you know, there's just horrendous things. God's portrayed as ripping the fetuses out of the wombs of mothers and, and, and dashing them to the ground and smashing children and parents together in, in Jeremiah 13. I mean, there's just some, you know, some, there's some nasty portraits there. Now, to, to give you just a nutshell of what I, how, I, how I respond to that, I ask this question. Um, how does the cross, how does this crucified first century Jewish criminal become the definitive revelation of God for us. Because if I'm next to a pagan and we're both looking at the crucifixion, the pagan doesn't see this as the definitive revelation of God. The pagan just sees, uh, this is just one of the many people that Rome crucified. You know, one of the many thousands and thousands of people that, that what is it that makes this crucified guy the definitive revelation of God? Uh, and the answer is that it's not what you see on the surface or what you see with the natural mind, as Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, we once regarded uh, Christ according to the flesh, but we do so no longer. Well, if you regard him according to the flesh, you don't see him as the revelation of God. That becomes the definitive revelation of God when we, by faith, see something else going on. And, and it's when we look through that ugly surface of the cross to see that it was the creator of the universe stepping into that. That's what reveals God. So the all-holy God took on our sin, became our sin, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And, and the perfectly united triune God took on our separation, our forsakenness, the, the curse of, of our sin. Um, and the distance he crossed 
is what reveals the love that he is. Okay, so he, 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 and he crossed an unsurpassable distance. He couldn't have gone any further in all eternity. He became his own antithesis. He experienced his own antithesis. The all-holy God experiencing sin. The perfectly united God experiencing separation. So he, he couldn't have gone any further than he went to, to be reconciled to us when we could have not deserved it less, right? And, and the, the unsurpassable distance he crossed reveals the unsurpassable perfection of his love. That's why the cross is the quintessential revelation of God. And so, like, in, in, in 1 John, he sums it all up by saying, God is love, right, 1 John 4, 8. And then he says, or actually before that, he says, uh, here's a, how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we shall lay down life for one another. So do the math, right? God is love. Love is the cross. Uh, God is cross-like love. And so th th this is why, for the believer, the cross is both beautiful and revoltingly ugly. On the surface, it's revoltingly ugly because it actually mirrors our sin back to us. The horror of the cross is the horror of our sin. If you want to know how bad you're off your sin is, don't look into your own conscience because you're jaded. Uh, look at the cross. The ugliness of the cross, it, it mirrors the ugliness of our sin. But it's beautiful because God, by faith, we see God stepping into that. Now, if, if that's how the cross reveals what God's like, and then it reveals what God was like when he, when he inspired Scripture. Um, it reveals what God's always been like. And, and since all Scripture is supposed to point to the cross, doesn't it make sense to ask the question, um, where else might we see God revealing his beauty by taking on human ugliness? Uh, where else might we see God stooping this distance to enter into solidarity with his people? Uh, and, and where else might we find a surface appearance of God looks ugly, but we need to exercise faith to look through that surface to see the, the stooping God, the, the, this God of love stooping this far to meet his people where they're at, to bear their sin. And... Um, and so I, what I argue is that, that all of the portraits of God in the Bible that fall short of the beauty of what we find, the character revealed on, on, on Calvary, all of those should be interpreted in, in this way, that um, God is a non-coercive God. If the cross reveals anything, it's that God's, he, he, he reigns by the influence of his, of his love, not, not by coercion. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the cross is the power of God. This idea that, that, that God is this Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, deity who's out there uh, controlling everything, that's just the pagan view of God. That's what uh, pagans have always believed about God. The kind of power we lost after we think we just projected onto God. But Paul says the cross is the power of God. When God flexes his muscle, it looks like him getting crucified. This is anything but a coercive God. So God influences people as much as he can. Uh, but the, he won't coerce them. He won't lobotomize them into having true ideas about him. Um, and so there's a point where God says, I, I, I'm going to accept you as you are. I, I, I'm going to stay in covenantal solidarity with you, even though you think this about me, and I'm going to bear your sin and therefore take on an appearance that's going to reflect the ugliness of that sin, just like he does on the cross. He's always been a cross like God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the cross isn't one-off event, a uh, one-off event. I think it reveals the way God mm -hmm. always is. And, and so let's read the Bible in a cross-centered way, and, and we'll find um, uh, beautiful portraits of God that, re that, that reflect the character uh, that's revealed on the cross, but we'll also find portraits that reflect the ugliness of the cross. It's all pointing to the cross. And so like a portrait of God commanding his people to, to slaughter every man, woman, child, infant, and animal, 
Um, that, that's an ugly picture. That's a horrifically ugly picture. It's a genocidal picture. It's as contradictory to the character revealed in Christ as, as, can, as I, I can imagine. Uh, if I found that portrait in any other religious book, I'd say that is a truly ghastly, macabre, evil portrait of God. So how does it become beautiful just because it's in my book, you know? Uh, let's, let's be honest about it, okay? It, it's horrifically ugly. But see, as I am interpreting that, that reflects a whole lot more about the ugly way, the sinful way, the fallen and cultural conditioned way his people viewed Yahweh. It reveals a lot more about them than it does about Yahweh. But what it reveals about Yahweh is that he was not above staying in covenantal solidarity with these people, even though they thought that about him. And, and even though it surely grieved his heart in unthinkable ways to see his people taking up the sword against women and children, he stayed in covenant with them and uh, bore their sin. And in doing that, uh, he's anticipating and pointing to uh, the, the, the crucifixion. So I, I see all these ugly portraits of God as, as literary crucifixes, that point to the historical crucifixion, in a nutshell. <laughs> wow, that was, an, that, was a, that was a big nutshell. Now, and just <clears throat> taking that out and, you know, telling that to everyone and going, this is, look through this lens, <clears throat> pagans, look yeah. through this lens. But, well, you know, it, 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 I, I think <clears throat> some have argued, and <laughs> I think there's a good case for this, that um, one of the biggest obstacles uh, to people coming to, to believe in the Bible is, is an inspired book and that Christians have got anything to say is that we've got these horrifically ugly portraits of God in there. Uh, and it's especially concerning now uh, in this age of terrorism uh, because uh, we, we, we're, we're very aware that that violent portraits of God or gods that, that people regard as having divine authority always incline devotees more towards violence. Um, how could they not? How could they not? And so as long as we consider the surface meaning of these portraits to be authoritative to, for us, um, then we, we will be more inclined towards violence and less inclined towards peacemaking. Um, it, you know, we, we always act out the portrait of God that we have. And so if, if, if we put the, the revelation of God along, in Jesus Christ alongside the genocidal God uh, of the conquest narrative, and all the other macabre portraits. What you get is sort of a mixed, you know, schizophrenic kind of mm -hmm. picture of God, which sadly is what most Christians have. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, the, the, the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. It, it, it's like, it, it's, and your passion for God will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. If you've got a, a picture of God that's lovable, you're going to love God. But if your picture of God is ugly, you're going to not love God. And, and, and a lot of folks just look at that and say, that's just not credible. That's not, you know, if that's your God, I don't want anything to do with him. I'm trying to offer folks here that the cross, Jesus' cross-centered life and ministry, uh, it's not one revelation among others. It's the revelation that culminates all others, and, and, and it's the lens through which we should interpret all others. And when we, if we just trust that God really is as beautiful as he was revealed to be on the cross, now you can find him in all those ghastly, ugly pictures. The same way you find him in the ghastly, ugly, crucified criminal in the first century. Uh, but if we don't trust that God's really like that, if we suspect that God actually could uh, be as ghastly as he's portrayed in the conquest narratives, well, now you're not going to have a pit beautiful picture of God at all. Um, and, and now you're not trusting that God is as beautiful as he is on the cross because you think that he's actually capable of wanting his people to slaughter babies. Well, getting into, getting into as you 
talked about relationships. They're key to, you know, this belief system. It's not a system, but just the belief in, in God and Jesus and what was done. And so it's breaking down those presuppositions that people, that people have, getting into a, a conversation and, and then finding a loving way to, to relate to them and to bring the kingdom and to bring that light and to go, is, could, is it possible that you could look through this lens, just try it on for a little bit and, and see what, yeah. that, what that looks like? It's very, I mean, listening to you, I'm, the argument is the narrative I love. Um, it's just, I'm also looking through that lens and so I'm affirmed by it, and but also I'm called or we're called um, to go and, and make disciples and, and pray for people and, and live out um, within this kingdom and glorify God. Like, so, I mean, there is no, my instant, like, I want to go out and do this is, uh, you know, brings up a little bit of my pride and wanting to control things. And I got to set that aside, but the call of discipleship is just a call to live a cruciform life. Yeah. Uh, You find that throughout, uh, you know, read Michael Gorman's uh, book, Cruciformity. Uh, He's got a couple of books on this, but it it all comes down to, you know, uh, replicating, uh, live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. And, uh, and, and, you know, Paul says that we are, we're, we're God's love letter. We're the picture of God that, they'll, that they have. That's beautiful. And I don't That's think beautiful. our words will have any more credibility than our life does. Yep. And so it, it, if we're out there, I, I encourage my, the folks in my congregation and my podcast um, to don't engage with anything about, about non-believers, about what you think is wrong with their life or, mm-hmm. you know, their opinions or whatever. Um, rather, just live out the cross, serve like the cross, sacrifice like the cross, care about the needy and the stranger, um, and then then use words when you have to. You know, to, to, they should make clear why you're doing this, um, and 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 always be pointing people to the cross. Um, and then that that begins to get that will get a people's presupposition about what they think about God. I mean, mm-hmm. most most in fact, I have yet to meet an atheist who has rejected the God that I believe in. The God they reject is the God I would reject too. Right. And and it, 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 if they were rejecting the God I believe in, they would at least wish it was true. If they if they don't wish it was true, uh, then then they then that's a sign that they're not rejecting the true God. They're rejecting their the image of God that they were given, or uh, the representatives of God that happen to be jerks. Well, that, that yeah, that's right. The the, the butthead God is modeled in butthead Christians. Yeah. You know, who are always minimizing their sin and maximizing the sin of others and making statements about it so the world will see how they are not as sinful as other people. Yeah. As I, as I read it, we should be doing the exact opposite. Jesus says, you know, why, why are you even looking for that speck of dust mm. in your neighbor's eye when you got freaking tree trunks coming out of your own eyes? Yeah. <laughs> and there's a zillion tree trunks in every, you know, a, a zillion particles in every, in every uh, tree trunk. So we should be considering our sin to be a zillion times worse. Yeah, there's, uh, there's always the tree trunk. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 he's giving us a posture we're supposed to assume. Right. He's saying that objectively, the, your, the disciples were that much worse sinners than everybody else. They probably were a little more decent than other people. But our attitude should be this one of absolute humility. Absolute humility. What, yeah, yeah. So I had a lady it's a little while ago come up to me after church service and says, I'm visiting your church. Uh, I, I'm gay. Do you think I'm a sinner? And I said, I'm certain you're a sinner, but you're not nearly as bad a one as I am. 
Mm. Uh, I, I think that's kind of like this is level playing field here, uh, but put me and us beneath that. Awesome. Well, I know we're c- coming close. I have to. I think Scott might have gotten fired. He's at his desk. I saw him talking to somebody. Who knows? He's he, he's supposed to be working, but <laughs> but what do you think? If I don't know if you got a small nutshell of what do you think was going on with the flood? Because I know Scott would have a lot of questions as kind of our more traditional conservative-ish representation on the podcast. What's going on with the flood story? Is God actually enacting violence? Yeah, you, know, you gotta have one fundy to hang out with just to keep you honest, you know. So that, that that's that's why we love good. them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, with with uh, what I show is that, or at least what I argue is that, um, I, 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 you know, the, the cross was a violent. It was a judgment of God. It was a judgment of God on all sin. But none of the violence was carried out by God. Uh, the only thing God did on the cross was He delivered Jesus over to wicked humans operating under the principalities and powers. Uh, to do what they were already inclined to do, uh, and and all, all, that's all God ever does. It's, if the cross is the paradigm, uh, and the key to our understanding of God, we should read the Bible, knowing that how God judges sin is not by acting violently, but by turning uh, agents over to uh, sinners over to uh, humans and or cosmic agents who carry out what they want to do. And God does that only because I, I make the case that it, it's when His mercy is no longer. Uh, working when when it, when uh, when his mercy is only serving to enable people to get hard more hardened in their sin, he's got no choice but to say, "I have to turn you over now." Romans one is a classic illustration of that, um, and and that, that they now suffer the consequences that are inherent in their sin. So, uh, in, in, in judgments in the Bible where there are no other human agents, um, I, I make the case that in all of them the the while there's no human agents, there are other agents that are involved uh, in the violence. Um, now, in the in, in the case of the flood story, um, there you, what you realize is that that in the ancient Near East, when they talk about water in any kind of context where there are um, where where violence is being done, where there's there's a judgment coming about, they're not just talking about H2O. Uh, throughout the Bible, the raging waters are, that's the ancient Near Eastern way of talking about these forces that are always threatening the earth. And so you have all these statements, and, and this is not just in the Bible, it's found in all the other ancient Eastern cultures. Uh, they all had, their, their chief deity was the one who pushed back the hostile waters, the raging sea, uh, set boundaries beyond which they could not go. Uh, he battles the waters, you know, and, and tramples on the waters. Um, and, or sometimes they're, they're portrayed as sea monsters, Leviathan and Rahab. Uh, and, and, and things like that. It's, it's what's called the chaos motif of the Bible. Um, and what happens in, 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 in the uh, flood narrative is you have really the undoing of creation. At the beginning of creation, the, the um, Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And the deep is another con- ancient Eastern concept. Tehom uh, is the idea. The deep, and you know, if you do a little research on that, you'll find that you know, David one time, or the psalmist says, you know, I'm being swallowed by the deep. The deep is another one of these cosmic forces that Yahweh has to keep at bay. Um, uh, so he, he, he puts a hedge around the hostile uh, waters when he creates this world, this present world, and, and carves out dry land and then populates the land, separates the land from the sky. And, and there's the waters above and the waters below, and, you know, and, and, all, and all that. And he makes space for creation. What happens with the flood? It's interesting, but there's no none of the violent verbs are applied to God. It does, the author, being an ancient Near Eastern person, does say God sent the flood. 
Mm-hmm. Any ancient Near Eastern person would do that because in the ancient Near East, and here's what your audience really needs to know. The way you praise God is by ascribing violence to him. Um, and the more violence and the more macabre the violence, the better. I mean, it's almost like they have a contest. Our God is greater than your God because our God will rip the, the, your baby's head off and drink their blood and eat their genitals. You know, they're, they're yeah, just, yeah. They're, they just, and you find that in the Bible. You know, God's sword is thirsty for blood, and he's going to, you know, drink of your blood and eat of your flesh. And, and, and uh, in fact, the biblical authors, when, when, when they portray God in the, as a violent warrior, they, they often will take exact phrases from the songs that were sung to other violent warrior deities in other cultures, and they just s- s- replace their God with Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they sing the same, same songs uh, and, and use the same phrases. Nowhere does God look more like the other gods of the ancient Near East than when they're talk than when they portray Him engaging in violence. On the other hand, nowhere does the in the Old Testament does the, their portrait of God contrast more with the surrounding culture than when they portray Him in beautiful terms. Uh, there's there's no parallel to uh, the idea that God is the husband and the nation is is the bride. I mean, there. When the Spirit of God can break through their hard hearts and reveal truth, it, it magnificently contrasts with everything else everyone else believes. But here, unfortunately, uh, they they weren't capable of, of seeing God in these beautiful terms uh, in any kind of consistent way. And God doesn't lobotomize their brains. He always respects their personhood. So we have to now meet them where they're at. But it is interesting that even though he says he sent the flood, none of the violent verbs are applied to God. They're all applied to the deep. The raging waters, you know, the flood, you know, and and uh, that's where all the damage is done. And he, so here, God, he opens up the floodgates. Okay, he stops holding back the forces. The forces come, and now there's this deluge. And and what we have is the un, the the discreation of the earth, or really of the whole cosmos, as it's portrayed in Genesis. Um, and then um, uh, when that's over, then God brings the first verb applied to God is in, in Genesis eight. When it says he blew back the waters, once again, he's going to restrain the waters. Um, and now you have great dry land appearing and, and things of that sort. Um, it, it, it's reflected in other ways, and I go into in a lot of length in, in, in the book, where um, uh, the, the Lord says, I, my spirit won't always contend with human beings in, in, in Genesis 6-4. Uh, after 120 years, I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to withdraw. And that's what God does. He withdraws and he turns people over to suffer the, the, the consequences of the the corruption that they themselves have sown. It's another way that you, you see the organic nature of sin in this narrative is the author talks about humans being corrupt and then about the earth being corrupted. And, and that's a, a thing that you find throughout the Bible is that uh, as it goes with humans, so it goes for the land and for the animals since we are the, we're entrusted to care for them. Right. Uh, our sin harms everything that we're in charge of. Um, and so in some ways, this was an organic uh, judgment that happened as a natural consequence of all of humanity. I mean, God was down to his last man. This is really a rescue operation. Uh, and so God had to salvage the human project uh, by, by allowing them to, to suffer those consequences. The most surprising aspect of my whole research was how, how often, in fact, it was almost always how that the, the cross-reading was confirmed by the narratives themselves. I, I, it just blew me away. That's why it took 10 years to do this. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I believe that on the basis of the cross, that God doesn't act violently. Uh, he simply, with a grieving heart, withdraws and allows people to suffer the consequences of their sin at the hands of either humans or cosmic agents. But when I read the narrative in that light, uh, man, it, 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 some of the confirmations were just 
I got to go in a minute, but I'll give you one more. You want one more? Sure, yeah. Okay, so like, if you read number 16, this is the great narrative of, of uh, it's not great, it's pretty grisly, but the narrative of Korah's rebellion. <clears throat> you know, he, Korah led this mutiny against Moses. Um, uh, well, nasty stuff happened to them. You know, the, the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them. And then uh, this fire came down and incinerated some others. And then a plague came and uh, wiped out all these others. So you think, wow, God caused there to be an earthquake and kill those people and then sent down fire from the sky and kill those people. And this plague, uh, you know, slaughtered all these other thousands. And it could be that the author thought that because he's an Eastern Eastern person. And so, you know, he certainly doesn't go out of his way to, to distance God from that. But it's interesting that Paul, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, he's talking, he's drawing lessons out of the Old Testament. And at one point in, in verse 10, chapter 10, verse 10, he says, don't be like the grumblers uh, who were killed by the destroying angel. Now, this is the most famous episode of grumblers in the Old Testament. Uh, and most scholars argue that he's referring to this episode, but there's no destroying angel. But he could be referring to all the episodes of grumblers. Uh, I think there's like seven of them, grumblers who get judged, but there's no destroying angel in any of them. So where did Paul get this idea that there's a destroying angel? Uh, you know, there's that already, that, that already provides precedent for us to um, uh, assume that there's other agents involved uh, when, when there's divine judgments that don't involve other humans. But what really blew me away is when I began to really dig into this passage, and here I had to really dig into more. It's more non-evangelical scholarship than than that that, that gets this more than the evangelical scholarship. I think largely because uh, evangelical scholarship, this might go cut against some of their uh, assumptions about an answer or whatnot. Just a few. But, yeah. So, but but a lot of scholars argue. That when the author says the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed these people, we take that as a metaphor, right? <laughs> but they they wouldn't have. They saw, most saw the earth as a divinity, uh, and it had a malicious streak to it. Uh, or, the, alternatively, everyone in the world believed that just under the earth, under the ground, there was this creature uh, in Canaan that he's referred to, or it's referred to as Mott, the god of the underworld, the god of death. And, and there's hymns they saw, sing about how its jaws reach up to the surface of the earth. Like, like what was that? That, that Tremors. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. The, the, yes. That, that's how they viewed it. And sometimes this beast would swallow people alive, which is maybe how they explained earthquakes. Uh, so the original audience would have uh, assumed that there's this male malevolent being that God had been holding at bay, but now God's going to let that malevolent being do what that malevolent being wants to do. The fire and the plague, uh, a lot of scholars argue that those are actually references to, um, there's several ways of, of explaining it. Well, one is that the fire, it comes out of the mouth of Mott, because Mott, Mott, this under, uh, underworld deity, was known to breathe out fire, which was maybe how they explained volcanoes, but, uh, um, uh, and, and it happens simultaneous. Uh, others argue that that is actually uh, a reference to this fire deity in Canaan, and so also with the plague. In fact, there's a number of nouns in the Old Testament that a lot of scholars argue are actually the proper names of various deities uh, in, in Eucharistic literature or Mesopotamia or, or whatnot. Um, if, you, if you get this book, it's called Dictionary of Deity and Demons in the Bible. Uh, it's about 600 pages, but it's, it, it lists every possible deity that's named in the Bible. And, now, they're usually translated as abstract nouns uh, in, in, in our translations. Uh, but in some cases, they, it's very clear they shouldn't be. Like, for example, 
the word yam in Hebrew is the word for sea or water. But it's also the name of a Canaanite deity, a chaos deity, uh, who was identified with the chaotic waters. Uh, in, in Habakkuk 3, it says that Yahweh trampled on the sea, on Yam. But it's always translated on the sea. Um, but the next stanza, and this is Hebraic parallelism, where the second stanza is another way of stating the first. It says, he broke the heads of Leviathan, hmm. the many-headed hmm. sea monster. And, and, and so it's clear he's referring to, the, he's identifying Yam with Leviathan, and, and he's talking about how he uh, 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 mastered Leviathan. And, and uh, I'll add one more note. What's interesting about that <laughs> passage is that the author is talking about the parting of the Red Sea, mm. where he split the heads of Leviathan. He parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk through. And that completely reframes the Red Sea narrative. In fact, there's four other authors who do the exact same thing, where the, the, they celebrate not the drowning. They, it's not that Yahweh drowned the Pharaoh's army, but uh, God held back the beast from swallowing Pharaoh's uh, from swallowing his children, but didn't extend the favor to Pharaoh's army. So the beast did what the beast wanted to do. And the author of, of Genesis 15, or Exodus 15 uh, uh, echoes that point when he says that the earth swallowed them, even though he's talking about the sea. He says the earth swallowed them. Um, and some scholars argue there that the author is identifying this earth deity with the sea deity, and it's the deity that does the devouring. Okay, that's... It's in you know, to grab, a, to grab a 60 or 70s term, you're blowing my mind here, Greg. Good! I like to see Blaine's brain splatter. <laughs> <laughs> it's all over my amp now. <laughs> oh, this has been great. Yeah. Well, the thing it does is, is that um, uh, it, it allows people to – the feedback I've gotten is that it, 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 it can build congruity. I mean, we've all lived – the clearer you get about – about the centrality of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ and on the cross and, and the, the beauty of God revealed in Jesus. The clearer you get about that, the more problematic these Old Testament portraits of God become. Um, and and, and just, it just creates incongruity in our brain. Um, and, and we want to trust that God really is this beautiful, but what about, it's like this lady told me, uh, she came up after I was sharing this kind of stuff in my church and, 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 and she was crying and, and she was just like, it was really a beautiful moment because she said, um, uh, she goes, you give me permission to try uh, to trust, to trust that God's beautiful. I always felt like, wow. you know, I was, in love. I, I was, it was like, I, it was like finding the man of your dreams, you know, and, 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 and he gives you every reason why you should marry him. But then you find out that several years back or a lot of years back, he slaughtered a classroom full of children because I could never fully give my heart to a guy who ever did that. And she goes, that's how I always was, was with God. I, I never fully gave him my heart because uh, he killed children. But now that I understand that that was about the people he was dealing with, not about him, I, you freed me to really trust that God is as beautiful. Hmm. And, and that's the kind of thing it does. For people who believe the whole Bible, and yet you believe that, that Jesus is the full revelation of God, this is a conundrum that's got to be answered. And, and, and I'm just offering people one way of looking at it, which, which works for me, and I hope it works for them. Wow, Greg, thank you so much. Yes. Thanks for going above and beyond, and thank you to your wife, Shelly, for helping me set all this up. Oh, man, where would I be without her? I, I don't Amen. know. She was awesome. I'd be in some rubber room pounding my head against the wall. But, uh, yeah, yeah, she, she, she keeps my life together. Well, well your I story's not that. over. You might end up there yet, so we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, the end's not, not, the future is open. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I hope it's not open to that. 
All right. Well, well God bless you guys. Keep up your uh, your good work. All right. You too. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thank you, sir. Scott Holbert, are you still? Do you still have a job? Are you fired? What the heck, Scott? Did you see that? Yes, I got pictures. Oh man, he's right there. Couldn't. He was lurking uh, over you. Yeah. <laughs> was that your boss? <laughs> yeah. Oh so, my gosh, Scott, you you missed. I tried to represent you by giving him an Old Testament conundrum to work through, because you were you were missing. So I asked him about the flood. And so he answered the flood question. You're just gonna go back and listen to it. I heard, I heard part of, I heard the last part about uh, uh, Leviathan and uh, uh, splitting Leviathan or something. Yeah, but so, we yeah. missed 20 minutes of us, of us listening and a little bit of responding. But and we're sitting there watching you and your <laughs> boss over your shoulder, and I'm thinking, Greg's watching this as well. This is fantastic. <laughs> And every once in a while, you could see when your boss walked in, Greg's eyes wandered over, like, <laughs> whatever. It's almost like someone walking uh, into church a little bit late. Yeah. I, man. So you're going to have to listen to this one, actually, for once. You have to listen to your own podcast, too. Because you would have had some great questions, I know. And mm-hmm. he just, once you get him going, he goes, and it's beautiful. And I just wish it was a little bit longer for him. Yeah. It's never long enough, is it, Jeff? Nope, not at all. We, right. There was so many follow-up questions. I wanted to know a little more In of the fact, backstory. Uh, I did get listener questions from Twitter, so I am, and some of which he answered indirectly. But I, I feel like I got to read them, and I'm a terrible host because I didn't plan the pacing well, and we just ran out of time. So maybe Scott, you can answer this on behalf of Greg Boyd. <laughs> I will. I will. Yeah. So yeah. I, I was gonna. Uh, Oh, uh, I just have a couple of listener questions, Scott. Zach Hansen asked, often you say that God always meets us where we are at, hence the warrior God portraits in the OT. Essentially us projecting our image on God. Do you think that God only spoke to those in middle in the Middle East, the people of Israel, or do you think other religions began as a whisper from God that man projected and made their own? Oh, I, I I've had that. I've had that question as well. What 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 was God's relationship with uh, the other people groups as He's calling Abraham? Did He, you know, did He go out to other people and they didn't believe, but Abraham was the one that believed, um, or you know, had faith? See, I have I have a very similar question to that, but I it's a good question. I don't know. And or yeah. maybe maybe it's also well. In addition, yes, and people that spring up independent of any knowledge of anything, but they have this sense of the divine or the sense of the deity and, and stuff like that. Like th- those people are included in that too. Is that, is God speaking through in that? In, are they getting glimpse of God speaking w- with some of their beliefs? Albeit through a lens darkly. Yeah. There's, there's no question that, that there's a, a, uh, a common set of ideas that is throughout many people groups that are spread throughout the world and um, in different millennia. So how, how does that happen? How, how do humans come to some of the same conclusions? If, if you know, the details are different, but uh, they're you know, or, or the floods. Yeah. The flood stories or even just a God in general that exists and can interact with the world to some degree. Uh, how, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, dispersed peoples 
um, one of the ideas, I guess, uh, you know, if, if when you get to the beginning, um, or going back to the beginning, <laughs> when you get to the beginning, <laughs> um, going back to the beginning, if, if Cain is sent out and he kind of creates a new people group, then that idea goes that way. Um, and then, of course, with the flood, if, if, if there are only eight people left, then all of those stories get dispersed that way. Um, uh, so you have common ancestry with a small people group that are able to uh, You don't carry mean out dwarves, right? You one. just mean small in number? <clears throat> or do you mean, are you talking about a dwarf community? I yeah um, enough to yeah they have, they have to be small enough to fit in the, in the boat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, and then on Twitter at Magic Valley Jen uh, asked my most recent church background is reformed. My pastor, my husband, love the line, "If God is not sovereign over all, He's not sovereign over any." Post deconstruction, I of course see the issue in a more nuanced way. How do I address this with my husband? So she's looking for relationship advice from Greg Boyd, and sadly, you're getting it from us. But actually, actually, Greg kind of he touched on yeah. God's sovereignty, and it's kind of like th- I don't know, threading the needle, like splitting the difference between. Well, actually, he mentioned the blooper, blue blooper, blueprint book he, he's working at. He did. The blueprint book that'll be very interesting because that'll probably, man, kind of deconstructing the idea that God has a blueprint plan for everything. I don't know. I'm yeah, interested. well, and we and we see, yeah, we see that because um, there's prophecy and and uh, how, how do you how do you merge those ideas the the, um, the prophecy aspect with human's ability to choose a or b or i guess a or not a whatever right. um so how do you how do you merge those two ideas to, think, to say that it's one or the other without some sort of yeah you're it's a good point i think most of what we see in probably the most of prophecy is god's prophets actually saying basically outlaying like if you continue down this road this is what's going to happen but there's also examples of the people turning, and so they avoid said cataclysm because there weren't going to be consequences for that behavior because their behavior changed. Like right. a, a very small percentage of prophecy is like a direct prediction of the future in a specific way. It's more like calling the people to repentance and to avoid uh, what is referred to as wrath. And I don't want to debate wrath right now, but. That's the, yeah, the way it's phrased. and we also, but we also have the um, prophecies about the Messiah, um, and that that I don't think could have been. Uh, I don't think that people's repentance could have stopped that uh, the Messiah was coming, whether you repent or not. Um, so I, I, I would take in that case, um, that blueprint was there, and there's a lot of decisions human decisions made around that, but God had that, had that set up already before the foundations of the earth. Man. Okay. All these are such good. Oh, but, oh wait, wait, but okay. But for specifically for the, um, if God is not all powerful, then he is not powerful at all or whatever that statement is. Um, <laughs> 
how, how far does that go? Uh, does that does it does it, does that go into hyper Calvinism? Um, it sounds that, like it. It sounds yeah, like her husband and her pastor are pretty pretty Calvinist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so so. Uh, does that mean that people can't choose? Does that mean does that does that mean that people can't choose? Does that mean people can't pray? Um, or should or you know ha, ha, prayer has no effect. W- what does that act do for the for the day to day day to day interaction? Of course, Calvinists though are pretty pretty strong on uh, evangelism. Um, believe it or not, um, well some of them are. Um, it's even amazing within- how they just ignore the cognitive dissonance. I'm just kidding. That was a cheap shot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next question, Robert Sesford asked a rhetorical question, which at, at first I thought he was digging at Greg Boyd, but I think it's more, when I looked at his profile, he, it looks like he's more on board. It's just uh, a discussion type question, which I'll just read. Uh, what has God changed your mind about lately? Nothing. Maybe you're using the Bible only to solidify your hand, hardwired paradigms, which is a can of worms. And then finally, Brandon Andrus asked, if God's full nature and character was embodied in Christ in a love that lays its life down for friend and enemy, then ought a follower of Jesus ever support or take part in the killing of another human being? Well, he said ever. So if you give a any scenario, what is – does that ever support? apply to every scenario um so the easiest one is okay war well no well even even closer to home someone is even closer to home (laughs) go ahead (laughs) someone's attacking your wife or your kids but uh, don't ever don't ever do it so i i get the uh, i get the idea but is that you does that sound like a loving God that you would allow your wife and kids to die when you had the ability to stop that? You know what? I'm going to leave that one alone and implore Brandon Andrus to email Scott directly at scott at brosbiblesbeer.com. That would be amazing if he just sent you like a thesis. So I... I, I I want I want to believe part ways, but with the word ever, Brandon is very careful with his words. Um, so it'll just be a, clarific- a b- clarification. That's all. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna clarify. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's great. I, is I, you I, just uh, turned into the Bible answer man. I'm answering these questions, and it's more just to like banter back and oh. forth briefly. But Jeff just like checked out. He's looking at something. Oh, he's and, done. And Scott, you turned yeah, in Hank Hanegraaff. <laughs> well. <laughs> Can you do your best? The tapestry Hank? of scri- the tapestry of uh, scripture as it goes across time and brings us to our present state. When we look at the Bible as a whole, uh, we understand more of God's nature, and um, it should take you should take comfort in that. I'm bored. That that, that was, was probably a, terrible. That was great. Hand motions and everything, and you look down and you were kind of sco- closing your eyes in concentration. Like a little, little. He, he does it. All right. Uh, well, <laughs> oh, I, I, uh, I, I liked, I liked a lot of what Boyd, uh, Mr. Boyd, Doctor Boyd was saying. Um, uh, I will 
we were probably getting into where I, I missed the parts where I might have disagreed more. Um, that's probably better. Very much so, um, but it was acknowledged. I I acknowledged kind of the questions that yeah you, you and I was going to ask and... you. Go ahead. I was going to ask you to uh, to uh, uh, play me uh, if I was if I was if I had to drop. <laughs> and you did. <laughs> well, sorta. Of. I just asked him about the flood. Like I had to, and then he went off the flood and just springboarded into another topic. And he was just rolling. So, apologies to our listeners who asked questions, and we couldn't get him to answer those questions. But I think throughout his his episode, I think he kind of touched on some of the the bigger concepts. So hopefully, it's satisfying. I mean, having written fourteen hundred pages of a book and having gone through the research of all of that to get to all of those thoughts and all the cross-referencing and all of the language and the translations and going down that path and then writing this book and, and having written before and still feeling confident. Oh, and also ditching 311 pages of a, of a book and, and filtering that all out and then writing 1400 pages. I mean, the research and it's a skull. I mean, it's and the, written right. in a scholarly. Like oh the, the cross references are out of control. <laughs> right. Same I'm, with God at War. It's amazing. Um, by the way, he had his own book on the shelf behind him, God at War, by Greg Boyd. <laughs> I don't know about that, <laughs> Greg. It's a little pretentious. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Uh, but God, the uh, he certainly doesn't come across no, as pretentious. No, he was so easy to talk to. Yes. Yeah. And to listen to. Well, he's in his mind. He's in his research. He's in his like ongoing thought and his beliefs. And he, it just you ask him and he kicks it out. But it, it's obviously all that research that he's done, and all of you know what he's gathered over a lifetime is now just being pushed out. In you ask him a question, it's already in there, and he can go down a rabbit hole with you if you want. Yeah. Man, I so crucifixion of the warrior god right now. I think it's thirty five bucks on Amazon for the for the two volume fourteen fifteen hundred set. It is yeah. not much actually on Kindle. A couple weeks ago, there was a flash sale for ten bucks, so I got it on Kindle, which is awesome. And then Cross Vision is the uh, it's written for the simpletons like me, and I'm reading that right now on Kindle. It's it's pretty awesome. Oh, and his website, too. Everything will be in the show notes, obviously, but renew.org. I like how he didn't even care. He didn't even plug his stuff. He didn't do all the stats like we usually do. But renew.org, R-E-K-N-E-W.org is his website. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, yeah I, I, enjoyed, I was... Um, I enjoyed that. Thanks, Scott. Have a great hey, day. Jeff. <laughs> Welcome back, Jeff. I'm 52. I'm a gym teacher. Gym teacher. I'm a gym teacher. I'm 52 of a gym teacher. Gym teacher. I'm 52 of a gym teacher. Gym teacher. I'm 52 of a gym teacher. Gym teacher. Teacher, I'm a gym 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 teacher.